0: I don't know the truth! Hello and welcome to Factually, I'm Adam Conover. Thank you so much for joining me once again as we continue our series on how we can address our greatest challenges and how you, yes you, can pitch in and help out. This is the Fuck Hopelessness series. We are giving you actionable ways that you can help solve our greatest problems. And this week, we're gonna talk about one of the biggest problems in America, housing. Now we've covered it time and time again on this show. The housing crisis is very bad, all across America. In recent years, nearly half of American renters are cost burdened, meaning they spend more than 30% of their income on rent. And this is worse for low income renters, but more and more middle income renters are getting squeezed as well. And this is not just a problem in the largest metro areas like the Bay Area, LA, or New York. It is quickly spreading to previously affordable cities like Austin, even smaller cities like Spokane, the jewel of Eastern Washington, a place where I spent a very wonderful weekend just a couple months ago, Well, they are facing a crisis too. And this crisis is exacerbating everything from climate change to inequality to homelessness. So if we want to solve any of our other problems, we have to solve the housing crisis as well. So what the fuck do we do about it? I mean, this is not a problem that you can just snap your fingers and fix. One of the things that we must have to solve the housing crisis is more housing because we have more people and housing is c- continually falling into disrepair and so we need to build more and that takes time and money. And when we build the housing, we have to make sure that enough of it is affordable that people can actually live in it. And that's kind of a difficult thing to do when you know we have a housing system controlled by capitalism as is every other facet of our economy. Because the system is so big and it takes so long to fix, housing is one of those problems that feels like it's happening to us rather than something in our control. It has been so bad for so long in America that it's hard to know what better even looks like. Well, we do have some good news here, because better is finally starting to come into view in California. And that's meaningful because California is the state that, you know, invented single-family zoning and has by all accounts the most screwed, jacked-up, and fucked housing market in the nation. Two major pieces of legislation that were passed by the legislatures could help dramatically expand housing in the state, and they add to pro-housing bills already passed in the past couple of years. The result is the potential for millions of new units that could not have been built before if they are signed by the governor. And this seat change didn't come from nowhere. A coalition of activists have been pushing for these changes at the state and city level, and they're the ones who helped get legislators, unions, tenant and industry groups on board. As opposed to the NIMBYs, you've heard of them, the Not In My Backyard coalition of homeowners that have stifled housing progress for decades, these activists go by YIMBY, Yes In My Backyard. And they are proof that a motivated coalition, a movement of experts and activists actually can change one of the most difficult policy problems in America just by pushing like hell for it. So how did California YIMBYs do it? And what can they teach you about how to get involved to improve the housing crisis in your community? Well, To answer today, we have the perfect guest. Brian Hanlon is the president and CEO of the pro-housing group California Yimby, and he has been in the middle of efforts to improve conditions in California and hopefully the rest of the country. Please welcome Brian Hanlon. Brian, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So you run this organization, uh, California Yimby, Uh, I'd love to start by talking about how bad is housing in California and nationally. This seems to me to be one of our biggest crises, one of the biggest things that we are not providing our fellow citizens that is like a a desperate need that we have. It's as bad as not being able to have food or air to breathe or water to drink. Um, How bad is the housing crisis in this country?
1: Well, it's bad. Um, And so like this used to be a problem that was mostly associated with you know, expensive cities on like, in, in, like, in, like on the coast, like San Francisco, Los Angeles, Boston, New York. But the problem has really gone national and it's especially accelerated in the past few years with the pandemic and remote work and everything else, along with the fact that what's often gets missed is the median millennial is like 30 years old, um, right? Like we're not kids anymore. This is peak household formation age. and when you have the largest demographic cohort Saying I'm sick of spending a lot of money to live in a shipbox with like three housemates that I don't like, and they're like, oh, like wait a minute, like it costs four thousand dollars a month for uh, like a two-bedroom, like or like a, a family-sized mm-hmm. apartment in some places. Like this is insane. Uh, so yeah, no, it is de- definitely like no longer just a, a problem of like Santa Monica and San Francisco.
0: And this is something that we've seen change over our lifetimes. I mean, you have something you see people talk about on social media all the time is my parents were able to afford a home with their, you know, if not minimum wage job with their working class jobs. I will never be able to afford a home. You see people start to get doomery about it. Uh, But also, I've literally seen it change in my lifetime. I remember, you know, when I first moved to Brooklyn in 2005, I got one bedroom in a two bedroom place for $700 a month. That now look obviously that's inflation. Hamburgers yeah, yeah, yeah. used to cost a nickel, whatever. But still, the the degree to which you know in that same neighborhood, or even another you know up and coming neighborhood at that time w- would be an immense difference. Then when I moved to California, people were saying, "Oh, it's so much cheaper to live in Los Angeles than it is in New York." People actually said this, Brian. Yeah, yeah. And nobody's saying that anymore. Like now, it is you know the the epicenter of the housing crisis, and people know it's completely unaffordable here. And and now when I travel to other cities as as a I go to Nashville. I go to Austin. I even go to smaller cities than that, and you hear the same. Oh, no one can afford to live here anymore. Um, and so, what what is driving the fa- like this rapid housing crisis in like the last twenty years? Yeah. It feels like things have gotten out of control.
1: S- so a few things, and, and look, I don't want to take anything away from our boomer parents. I'm sure they did work very, very hard. Um, you know, not taking that away at all. Um, but like, if you look at okay, what were the median wages, the median uh, household incomes? at that time compared to what housing prices were. And what you find out today, like, they might be 2, 3, even 4x that level of multiple, meaning that, like, if a house costs, like, three times uh, uh, average wages in, say, 1980, now, especially in some of these high-cost areas, it might be 7, 9, 12 times as much. It is completely mm-hmm. unaffordable to most, like, you know— people unless if you're like a dual income in the bay area like a tech family or if you have family money which turns out is a lot more common than i had realized (laughs) but like what's well i I said like what's actually driving it though look yeah it's it's not some of the stuff like like that I don't think it's blamed. Like, it's not, you know, foreign investors. There's this real, like, yellow, uh, yellow peril vibe that you have, especially in some, like, West Coast cities, like, talking about, like, Chinese investors, like, coming and buying things up. Like, that's nonsense. That is not what's happening right now. It's, it's, it's because you have, again, the largest demographic cohort in this country reaching peak household formation years after a decade of barely any national home building at all. Like, the Great Recession just wiped out the, the construction industry, Home construction rates plummeted. And so you have these things coming ahead at once where you have both like the lowest supply and the greatest need. And there's just like nowhere for people to live. And so now, now people are spreading out, right? Like people from the coast are moving to Nashville. They're, they're, they're moving to Texas. And now like what's happening in Nashville, like what's happening in Texas, right. you're seeing the same things that you're seeing on the coast. And yeah,
0: so when we talk about that boomer period, right, and mm-hmm. even before then, the, the post World War II era, these were times of huge national home building. This was Levittown. Right. That we're gonna build ranch homes everywhere. We're gonna colonize, you know, the the outlying areas and turn them into suburbs. And created, by the way, some horrible suburbs that that no one that that now we wish we hadn't built. But there was a huge. Like national push towards building homes and also making it possible for the average citizen to buy a home that continued for decades up into the baby boomer years, yeah. right? Um, and we, am I right that we just not have not had that kind of national push? Like th- there was a there was a federal and state effort to make it possible, make it affordable for people to buy homes. What happened to that effort? The federal government still keeps down food
1: prices. Why doesn't it keep down housing prices? Good question. Well, like, like let's be clear though about like what, like the nature of like much of this subsidy, right? So like, you did have a fair amount of like uh, a lot more than you have now of federal subsidies directly for like low income people to deal with the housing. There, there are still some, but those are a fraction of what they were say back in the, in the in the heyday, the '60s and '70s. But really, the big thing that happened is the federal government massively subsidized suburbanization. So you had all. All of these, you know, suburban tract town builders, they were able to get low-cost construction loans. Meanwhile, the government was building highways, building roads, building, you know, new sewage plants, building water infrastructure, building everything that... That, uh, that these um, suburban developers needed in order to make the, those areas uh, livable. Uh, well, the thing is, like, there's only so far that you can sprawl out, right, uh, be- before you're stuck with, like, two-hour commutes each way, which, again, in California mm. isn't, isn't as uncommon as it should be. So, like, that period, in part because of, like, the, the natural limits of sprawl, coupled with uh, the um, uh, new environmental protections, you are like, well, we can't quite do that anymore, so now what? And it's important to remember, like when, when a lot of people like like I like think of you know, gentrification and like rising prices in 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 central city neighborhoods, you know the suburbanization program was in many ways the greatest housing affordability program uh, for cities that the federal government ever did. But it was, of course, it was predicated upon like white flight, disinvestment, redlining, a lot of really really horrible stuff. Like, yeah. um, and you know now as. You know, folks are have been returning to cities for the past like you know twenty plus years, depending exactly on what city that that you're talking about. You're not seeing the same the commensurate rate of home building in those cities, but you're seeing an influx of people who make a lot more money than the people who were there before, and so then like that's leading to additional displacement pressures.
0: Wow, these are a whole lot of pressures happening all at once. I, I wanna. I want to just dwell for a second, though. Do we literally just run out of space in which to build suburbs? Like, if you're in, it's true. If you're in Los Angeles, you drive for three hours in any direction, and it is just suburbs as far as the eye can see. And a lot of the time, uh, you know, in smaller cities, Nashville often feels the same way. A lot of cities feel the same way. And there's a there's a certain only a certain distance past which you can get out. And we've had this. We've had this cultural preference for suburbs in America that, oh, we don't want to be that dense. We want everyone wants their own ranch home with a with a pool and a big backyard and a big front yard and, you know, a two mile drive to the nearest supermarket. That's just been, you know, the the image of the American dream. And do we just run out of the ability to build that shit? Like, and and we're and we've lagged on on building tall like we needed to have been, or what? Yeah,
1: I mean, look, I mean, like the technical response is no. Like, there actually is still a okay. lot more space to to sprawl out to, like if folks would really want to. And indeed, that is still happening in most metro areas, right? So, like a place like Houston, which is like a really fascinating metropolitan area for a lot of reasons, like they 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 you know nearly ended homelessness, which like you know uh, L.A. and San Francisco could really uh, take a page out of uh, Houston's uh, housing policies. But mm-hmm. they're, they're doing two things. They continue to sprawl out, but the city itself is actually densifying, right? Like where there used to be detached single-family homes, like now you're seeing t- you know, four townhomes, uh, wh- you know, where there used to be a parking lot, like now you're seeing apartment buildings. So like they, they're doing like what you need to do, both like growing out and, and, and growing up. Um, I would suggest though that, you know, look, climate change is very real. Um, and this sort of sense that we can just sprawl out forever, drive till you qualify, it's a really dead-end way to live. Um, and that uh, the focus right now really should be on how do we accelerate home building, like near jobs, near transit, near where most people actually want to live. Um, yeah. You know, Like like sure, like plenty of people, they commute the 90 minutes each way, but if you're like, well, if you could get an affordable family-size home closer in and you had like a 20-minute commute, would you do that? Yeah. And that didn't, like, again, Not literally every human being would say, yeah, but a whole bunch of them would.
0: Yeah. And uh, by the way, I have a preference for, for dense living environments. You know, I'm a, I'm a Brooklyn Manhattan kind of guy. That's the kind of place I like to live. And where I live in Los Angeles, I got as close as I could to that ideal in my own living situation. But uh, my own preference, apart from that, like hey, even here in LA, the dream of Los Angeles was, oh, you can have your own little home. You can yeah. be in the city center, right? And hey, if you want to buy a condo instead, you can go somewhere else, right? But um, but that dream is dead in both of those cities, yes. right? And it's dead in so many places around the country, despite you know whatever your preference might be. So um, what is uh, so? Let, let's return to the 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 drying up of home building. Uh, I had not actually considered that before. After uh, I want to dwell on that a little bit more. After the 2008 Great Recession, that housing bust, there was, what, a sudden dearth of homes being built? And we're now just experiencing that lag catching up with us? Is that part of what's so happening? So, again,
1: it depends on the area. And, like, to be clear, California specifically um, and some other areas like metropolitan New York, metropolitan Boston, had been underproducing homes really since, like, the 70s, especially since, like, the 80s, especially in Areas that are near the coastal job centers. Um, But that wasn't true in Atlanta. That wasn't true in Charlotte. Charlotte, That wasn't true in Dallas, right? That wasn't true in these like faster growing sunbelt towns. After the Great Recession, and again, like you can like look at these charts of like national um, you know homes built per year they just fall off a cliff like um, um, around two thousand and eight. you saw a number of things happen. one, there was a recession like people had like a lot less money <laughs> to spend on homes. Uh, two, you had uh, significant um, uh, change of uh, lending standards, so all kinds of people who qualified to get mortgages before no longer qualified uh, to get a mortgage uh, and then as a result of this happening, you had this massive shift out of the construction workforce and they have not come back. So the construction workforce now, like the the, the folks mm. who actually build the homes is significantly smaller than it used to be. And part of this is because we were really relying upon a boom of largely um, uh, immigrant laborers l- disproportionately from Mexico in the 1990s. Well, that's also shut off, right? Like, there are, as you put it, you know, pressures from all over the place and it's like, <laughs> you know, the people who aren't home buyers currently are, are feeling the squeeze. Now,
0: but here's this is a political question, and maybe it's a little bit out of your wheelhouse, or maybe it's in. Mm-hmm. I have no idea. You will find out once I ask the question. Let's do <laughs> this. It. Is, this is the worst front porching of a question I've ever done. <laughs> um, why has this not been a bigger political crisis in America when the price of gas goes up? Right? The federal government steps in. When the price of food goes up, well, frankly, the price price of food never goes up because the government exerts massive price supports on foods to keep staple foods very, very cheap. Um, we do that with so many other, I mean, uh, you know, with exceptions, we provide clean water everywhere in the United States. That's pretty good. And when the exceptions happen, they make the news pretty regularly. Uh, uh, uh n- you know, not, not, uh, downplaying at all how bad those yeah, situations are, right. how they affect, you know, uh, disadvantaged people generally. But... Housing, why is housing, you know, the fa- this has been happening for the last 20 years and I've felt it. And, and I remember watching, you know, every time the presidential campaign rolls around, hey, when is this going to come up? When is someone going to talk about this in a debate? And they never do. Why is that? Why is, why is this something that we cannot get political will behind
1: change? Yeah, well, What's it's affecting so many people. That's a great question. And let me ask you, Adam, h- how many of your non political nerd friends know who their city council member is?
0: Uh I mean I tell all my friends <laughs> okay, who their city council person all. is. All right, yeah. So so most of them are informed because they know me. Yes. But yes, yes.
1: good question. All right. So I mean not many. The, 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 the bottom line is that historically, like like issues around like zoning, like housing approvals, land use stuff has been a local issue. Um mm. so it just like hasn't been a real matter for, for uh national politics for decades. Um and like, so then it's the question, is like, well, like, why aren't local city council members, why aren't state legislators, why aren't they doing more to address this problem? Well, think about who votes and who talks to them and who's organized and who's not, right? Like, we, we do know from like looking at the literature, homeowners vote at much higher rates than non-homeowners, than non-homeowners and they're doing great in this uh, housing shortage, Right? Like, you know, mm-hmm. if, if, if like, you're, you know, the boomer parents who bought the home, especially if you bought in a place like New York or coastal California back in the eighties, they're all millionaires now, right? Like, mm-hmm. and again, like they may, like you know, my dad worked his way up the postal service. My mom went back to school to become a teacher, and like they were able to buy a home in the eighties, and then they they got divorced, need to sell. But you know, like they, they still made tons of money, like off this house that that they bought, um, and that wasn't through their their like any special effort. It's because like there weren't enough homes relative to, to people uh, who needed them, and now it's like you know their children <laughs> and like our friends uh, who are getting screwed because like there just aren't enough there, but. Again, like politicians like, respond to like, who is making demands, who can get them voted out of office, and, and uh, who's not. And like homeowners associations, local city council members, like they vote, they make their feelings heard, and renters, especially younger renters, largely have it. Now that is changing. And the Yimby movement has, I think, really played a large role in, in helping bring that change about.
0: Yeah, and we talked about this sort of perverse incentive on an episode we did a few months ago with Jenny Schutz, which people should go listen to if they haven't heard it already, that like, there's a a very perverse incentive happened where, because of the, you know, government pushing people into homeownership as being the main way that middle class people are going to generate wealth, well now people are living inside their stock portfolio, basically, and you say they're millionaires, they're they're living inside the million dollars, right? And that means that they have an incentive to keep the price of the house high. And how do you keep the price of the house always going up? Well, you make sure that there isn't enough supply for, for people to have someplace to live. I mean, like, uh, it, it's it's bizarre that, uh, you know, like, I, I happen to, I live in a small home that I purchased. The price of the, the or my neighbors who live in a very similar home, you know, lived in as long as I have, they sold theirs. They made a 33% profit on selling the home. Mm. Uh, And so that is, I'm looking at my home going like, "Would I, I, maybe I would make that amount of money but that's bad. Yes, it is bad. (laughs) Like it's bad for the price of housing in my neighborhood to go up by, I know that it might benefit me if I want to get the fuck out of Dodge and I don't care what happens in the neighborhood if I'm a selfish person like that, but it's bad for the, for the price of housing in a neighborhood to go up by 33% in five years. Like, and so we've got a situation in which you've got the people who are voting are uh, like, have an incentive to make sure that housing prices remain unaffordable because they personally profit off of it. That's fucked up, is it not, Brian?
1: It is fucked up, Adam, you're correct. (laughs) Um, So, and and look, like uh, 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 Jenny Schutz, a great scholar, and she's absolutely, you know, right. This is a really, this is a really perverse incentive. The one thing that I would note though, is this perverse incentive has existed for many decades. Right. Like Mm -hmm. mass homeownership existed in the 1960s and 70s. And just like absent, you know, a few places, you didn't have these massive rates of returns on housing during that time. Why? Because we were still building a lot of it. And so this like this like notion that, oh, it is some, you know, uh, law of real estate where housing prices will always go up because of this incentive is simply not true. Like there are ways that, again, non-homeowners and, you know, uh, uh, homeowner, you know, allies uh, can work together and make demands of their elected officials and change the rules by which the real estate market works.
0: Yeah. I, I just w- want to dwell on this, that um, when we did, an ep- we did an episode called Adam Ruins Housing a couple years ago of Adam Ruins Everything, and in that, we talked to an expert who reminded us, hey, the people say the value of your home always goes up. Actually, it doesn't. The value of your home remains the same because it can still house the same number of people, right? The utility value of it to society. It, in fact, becomes less valuable because you have to fix it all yeah. the time. You have to put money into repairing it. The price can go up, but if the price goes up, well, that means something is weird, right? It either means the area you live in is becoming more desirable, or it means that there is a housing shortage that your place is taking advantage of. Do you think I'm off base or well, is that- Well, it's right?
1: also, right, like there's a difference between like the price of like the actual structure itself, which is like a, you know, a durable good that depreciates every mm. time you and then the land that sits underneath it, uh-huh, right? And yeah. so what you've really seen, again, like, Anyone who's like familiar, especially with you know some of these these uh, locales that have been expensive for a while, like you see a bunch of two million dollar shit boxes like for sale in like, yeah. you know, Coastal California, oh, yeah. and you're like, how is this possible? Like this is insane, and like it's so it's so expensive because it's the shortage of homes coupled with the fact that that land is really valuable because like a rich person can then like buy that house, knock it down and like renovate it or, 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 or knock it down and then have like a nice, you know, commute with like great weather and like all the rest. And so it's really, you really need to decouple land from the structure itself. And part of our tax policy this is especially true in California Prop 13, but also other places have, have simply bad tax policies. New York City is a, is an anti renter mess for like a whole bunch of reasons like they, they assess taxes mm. in this really like bizarre way. That also has the effect of artificially increasing the price of, of houses because land is not being taxed properly.
0: Ah, okay. And and that goes to your point that it is very specific to the individual area and how they are doing the taxes and what they're incentivizing. But I want to return to your earlier point that it is, we don't need to blame individual homeowners that much because there is a way to structure housing so that homeowners can, you know, continue to have an investment in their home and we can still have enough places for people to live. Um, And so... Before we move on to how we do that though, I just want to know like how, what are the effects of housing being so unaffordable on individuals and on our society? Like how bad is the fact that it is this bad?
1: Yeah, um, well, so the thing is, you know, like like some folks talk about this, like housing theory of, of everything, right? Like. Yeah, like, why isn't Indy Rock cool anymore? Is that, about, is that because, like, the housing shortage too, right? Like, like, all sorts of things. Like, you can actually kind of, like, tie everything back to it. Um, and, and so on, like, to be clear, um, and again, I, I promise not to make this too, like, uh, California-centric, but California has the highest poverty rate in the country when you factor in the, the cost of living, right? Like, not much, much poorer states like, say, Mississippi or, like, West Virginia because of the incredibly high price. Of of a housing, we are halting our progress on uh, uh, on uh, climate change, especially with regards to transportation emissions, because we are not building sufficient like infill infill housing. We have, um, by some metrics, there are there are many places in in this country, including much of coastal California, that has worse racial segregation today than they did in 1968 when the Fair Housing wow. Act was passed. Right. Like we are, you know, are, are, you know, any sort of like racial or economic equity goals we have are getting thrown out the window. And really, when you think of like a lot of like the biggest issues, like confronting this country today, like inflation, right, is, is like is the one that probably gets like the most attention in part because it, it hits um, older folks who vote, especially. <laughs> um, that's one of the reasons why it's talk about it a lot. Um, like. What is the source of that inflation? It's largely housing prices and then and then uh, gasoline, uh, which you need because you, you live so far away from where you uh, work and shop. Um, homelessness. The number one reason that homelessness is exploding in this country, especially in the really high-cost metro areas, is because of the high cost of housing. It is not because of drug abuse. It is not because of mental illness. Right. Like states like West Virginia, which have like very high rates of opioid abuse and very high rates of, of drug abuse, have very, very low rates of homelessness because housing is cheap. Um, you, you uh, We have like reduced economic growth, like uh, 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 economists out of a U Chicago and UC Berkeley estimated that the uh American economy is about one point five trillion dollars smaller than it otherwise would be if we the, the, then if we allowed our most pro, uh, productive cities to grow as big as they would grow absent all these restraints and yeah. we're really just like this like idea of like the American dream right that like anyone can like move here work hard go to school etc, and then you can buy a house achieve that middle class uh, security etc like that is absolutely dying like I think a lot to my own family's story and my, my grandfather, right? My, my grandfather was a, a tenant farmer in Ireland. He didn't come to this country until he was 33, and his job was, like, loading sacks of mail on a train and, um, you know, doing landscaping work on the weekends. Uh, and yet, within six years of moving here, um, by the time he was 39, he was able to buy a home. His wife who was a domestic, right, like a maiden of uh, Yakim's home. Stopped working because you know that's what you did back then. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. You know, had three kids, sent them all to Catholic school. Like on this like blue collar job, like ha- like lived this American dream. Now for sure, the opportunities that my white immigrant grandfather had were not avail- Were not open to all Americans. Um, but like that's the kind of society that we should. Aim for where anyone, irrespective of where they come from, what their current station of life is, they can work hard and then they can like enjoy this middle class security stability in their American dream. And like if housing weren't cheap, <laughs> you know, in like the, the 1950s, there's no yeah. way that he could have done this. Would have been yeah, impossible. if you're
0: – If your ancestor had been, you know, spending four-fifths of his income on rent, like some people are in, you know, cities like Milwaukee, you know, cities all around the country. If he was being, you know, under threat of eviction, if he was spending all of his time trying to figure out where to live. I mean, we interviewed a couple years ago Matthew Desmond on the show, his incredible book, Evicted about the stories of people on the ground and how the the human misery that's inflicted by this, he would never have been able to have that story. And you also point out, even apart from the human misery, we should care simply for that reason, uh, about how many people's lives are being ruined by high housing costs, it fucks up our lives too. Like everybody is upset about homelessness. Everybody is upset that you know, or should be upset that their city is not as economically flourishing as it should be. And those are things are happening because of how h- high housing prices. This is a cancer yeah. on the whole country, and we got to do something about it. So when we come back from this really short break, we're gonna we're gonna hear the positive side of this. And we're gonna hear what you are doing, Brian, and the progress that is being made. We'll be right back with more Brian Hanlon. Hey, Factually listeners. You know, making this show is a labor of love for me, and I hope you love the show as much as I do. If you do, I hope you will consider supporting the show on Patreon. Head to patreon.com Adam Conover, and for just five bucks a month, you get ad-free episodes of this podcast. You can join our community Discord. We do a live book club over Zoom. It's a super fun space, and it supports the show. So if you want to join, head to patreon.com slash Conover. That's patreon.com slash Conover. and I thank you for doing Okay, we're back with Brian Hanlon. So we have established that the housing crisis is throttling America uh, and its citizens and its non-citizens and all people who live here. So uh, what the hell do we do about it? What do you do about it at California YIMBY?
1: Yeah. Uh, so California YIMBY is a statewide housing advocacy organization, and we you know, work to make California an affordable place to live, work, and raise a family for everyone. Uh, so we principally focus on accelerating housing production, especially in areas that are environmentally friendly, near jobs, near transit, and that sort of thing. So to that end, we focus on Like state laws that, like upzone, which is like basically a technical way of saying it should not be illegal to build apartment buildings next to train stations, and it Mm -hmm. is. And like, you Mm -hmm. know, so like much of LA, right? Like you have like the like the the Expo Line, this like you know like nice subway line, and you have all these like these single family homes like right next to the the line, which are all now worth like several million dollars a piece. Why it's illegal to build apartment buildings there? And so Wild. we're saying, well, it shouldn't be illegal to build homes near trains. Um, you know, like crazy uh, crazy thought. Then beyond that, we're saying it's like, well, it shouldn't just be not illegal to build housing. You should get approval to build housing if you're complying with like the correct rules. In most of the developed world, other than England, which is like California, only a semi-civilized place, um, the, you know, the, the ha- housing is like, often it's called like discretionary. Meaning that even if you comply with all the rules you fill out your TPS report you know to the you know to the dot you, you do everything right a, like a, a planning commissioner can still say you know I don't like the windows uh, that, that trim I don't care for actually it's about a story too tall and you're like but 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 why yeah. the, the rule second is got- like
0: or I got a complaint from somebody in the neighborhood that doesn't want a building to go there. Yeah. And I can just decide, you know what, your, your project is over. I don't even need a reason. I just, you don't get my signature on your approval. And then,
1: and the thing is, right, like, that's not the rule of law. Like, that's like the rule of like the whims of like idiot, you know, kings. I mean... Uh, that's one, that's one step to
0: corruption is like true corruption is if you, if someone has that much power to stop a project, then they start getting bribed and Hey, guess what? That we have a lot of that in, in Los Angeles and in California, uh, yeah. don't we I mean, We have specific, a lot of that specific
1: problem specifically around approval for building. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, like a Weird. Of, uh, money in a, in a, in a Las Vegas bathroom. Right. I mean, so yeah, I mean, and you see this in San Francisco as well and look like there's like academic studies, like I showed this, like this isn't just anecdotal places that have these that that give local elected officials this type of power, you incentivize corruption. Where instead if it just goes to, you know, some like career civil servant who's like looking at forms, then like, no. Um, uh, and a house. much so, so we focus on like you know streamlining is what it's sometimes called, housing production. Um, uh, then the last thing is like expensive fees and uh, and, and and requirements that make housing economically infeasible to build. So there are some places, um, like in Silicon Valley, for instance, that that, that might require up to a seventy thousand dollar per home parks fee. Now this is in addition to you know housing impact fees and sewage fees and wastewater infrastructure fees and like all the rest. Saying it's like oh well for every new person who moves here we need to buy a certain amount of land, and land's really expensive, so we can convert that land into a park, right? Like, it's just, like, a crazy way of thinking that's highly exclusionary and throttles housing production. So those are, like, the three big policy areas that that we focus on there. But we also support, like, tons of other laws that we think help create a more, like, inclusive, like, vibrant society. Um, And so, like, that gets around, for instance, like, it shouldn't be illegal for sidewalk vendors to, you know, sell fruit, right? Like we should, Uh like, we believe, right. You know, uh, you know, uh, into four-story buildings and neighborhoods and a taco truck in every corner, right? Like, that sounds like a great vision of of America.
0: People love street and sidewalk vendors. The people selling fruit, that's the best fruit you can get in in Los Angeles and in many places around the world.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so, like, you know, we we also focus on, like, legislation to, like, well, how do we grant, like, renters, like, more access to opportunities? Like, we actually had a bill, like, two years ago. Where now it is it is illegal in California for homeowners associations to ban renters. It wasn't before legislation. This is especially important in a lot of these like exclusionary suburbs that have like really nice school systems. And like, you know, like they don't have much rental housing typically, but what they do have is, you know, maybe there's an accessory dwelling unit, also known as like a granny flat or an in-law unit, they can rent that out. Then if that person has a kid, they can get into those good schools, right? Like, like, you know, creating those sort of avenues of like upward social mobility is something that we, you know, passionately care as an organization. So there's a whole bunch of stuff that we, you know, work on, but at its core, we're working to accelerate housing production.
0: Now the name of your organization is California YIMBY. Uh, this I assume stands for Yes in My Backyard. Good assumption. Which, which is a <laughs> it's a flip of the classic acronym NIMBY, Not in My Backyard, which is a, a word that is used to refer to anybody uh, who is objecting to something being built in their neighborhood. I think it's used very generally that way. Um, uh, but there are also you know it it is also used to describe a certain type of person or a certain type of organization, right? People who are anti-development, anti, uh, or anti-housing specifically, right? I, 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 anti-development's almost too broad of a brush. Yeah,
1: um, I mean, like it's uh, like, like if you want to like nimby new oil wells or like nimby a new highway, okay, great, right? <laughs> but like, don't yeah. like nimby new neighbors. <laughs> like, that's the, that's the <laughs> problem.
0: Yeah, so uh, how big of a factor are, uh, it, you know, it, how big of a barrier to the housing that we need, are NIMBYs writ large, Huge. right? Like, and and how does that power express itself, and why?
1: Yeah, and so the thing is, the power doesn't express itself, say, at the state level, in like all that, all that much, in terms of organized state, like organized. Entities that fight for explicitly NIMBY goals, like yes, sort of like you have all like the like League of Cities, like the the, the various county associations that like basically do that. But they have like other technical like local uh, control rationales where the power really manifests itself is on the ground in the district level. Right. When when, you know, even state elected officials, they're all elected from local districts. When they're talking to their mayors, talking to their city council members, when they're you know shopping for groceries on the weekend, they're running into you know these their neighbors, a lot of them homeowners, a lot of them active members of their homeowners associations, and they're getting an earful. But like oh, you know new housing oh, it's going to create more traffic uh, oh, it's going to bring with it crime and like the wrong kind of people and you know in California and progressive areas people generally use code words instead of just being explicitly racist, um, but you know that's the kind of thing that elected officials like hear from. And while they're maybe aren't all that well represented in like the discourse, like on Twitter and like in the New York Times, because it's like not a very respectable opinion to have, there are a lot of them and they vote. And so yeah, they're a huge block. They're a huge uh, roadblock.
0: I mean, often it does seem to be a respectable opinion to have. To to a lot of people, to me, it seems like the default. I mean, I think we all have that emotion of living in a place and then something changes, and you're like, ah, oh, they built a Shake Shack! Why is there a Shake Shack? And, you know, so there can be examples of something that you like being torn down to build something that sucks, and, you know, I've had examples, I've You know, there's been examples of that in my own neighborhood, but there's also, you know, I lived down the street from, there was a burrito shop that was part of this big empty building. There's this big empty disused commercial building, right? There's a burrito shop in it. I got a couple burritos, I was like, that's a nice burrito shop. They closed it down and everyone in the neighborhood was like, oh, the burrito shop is gone. You know what they're building there? like 200 units of housing, like this gigantic, (laughs) this gigantic building, right? Now here's the thing, a lot of people I know, and I still sometimes feel this way myself, I'm like, why they gotta build such a big building? It's ugly, the apartments are gonna be too expensive inside, probably not enough of it is affordable housing, you know, all those sorts of things. When we have those emotions, how do we know whether or not <laughs> we're, we're we're coming from the right place, right? Because we I think it's a human thing to dislike change yeah. and to be suspicious of a big money coming in and building something, right? On the other hand, I know we desperately need the housing. So, how do I tell the difference, you know, uh, uh, between a good faith you know, uh, hey, maybe we should adjust this and, uh, you know, something that's getting in the way. Because
1: I believe nimbyism lurks within the human heart, don't you? <laughs> oh, that is dark. Um, so, you know, look, <laughs> I, I think that uh, it is, I look, I think you're spot on. And I think, like, a lot of folks, like, they move to the... They move to the neighborhood that they like. They fall in love with it at certain rhythms, the places to go. I mean, hell, I got bummed out when the hemlock, like this great place for seeing shows in San Francisco, closed and they built condos there. Like, I'm like, ah, God, they have a hemlock, really? Um, But it is, I think what you need to say is that you can recognize those feelings as being valid. You're like, you know what? God, that that you know maybe they'll open up a new burrito shop like in order to serve those <laughs> like new people but it might not be as good it's not my burrito shop like you can still be kind of bummed out about that and bummed out about those feelings but i do think it's important to not make policy based on vibes and so mm. what you can say is that well you know yes this it kind of sucks I, it's it's okay to be a little bit sad about it uh, but i do understand that this new apartment building that that's 200 more households there, there, you know, maybe 300 more people who are going to have homes in my neighborhood that otherwise would not have homes in my neighborhood. They're going to enrich my life. Like maybe I'll make some new friends. Like maybe some of them will start like a new gallery or like maybe some of them will teach my kids. Right. Like, I mean, you know, who knows like what will happen there. Um, And the overall impact of like, of like helping you know, re- reduce housing scarcity, reduce housing prices, make it more affordable, make it a more welcoming community. To me, that like outweighs the, ah, oh, fuck, I can't get that burrito i loved anymore. <laughs> and also it's LA, there are other good burritos not that far away, right? So like, that's really not a good excuse.
0: I agree with you, I agree with you about this. Um, the, uh, just a corollary to that question though, is that, you know, sometimes when people are describing new construction, the reasons they don't like it, they describe it as gentrification, yeah. right? Um, that say the, uh, building is a newer building. Therefore it looks nicer. Maybe it has some luxury features. It's more expensive than the other homes that were there. Um, people sort of, uh, you know, see new as meaning more expensive. How do we, uh, but you know, I also know that sometimes people just sort of call anything new gentrification yeah. when it is not. And gentrification itself is kind of a slippery, you know, idea to get a handle on what exactly is it, what fuels it, etc. Now we're two white guys talking here. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to acknowledge that, but I, I want to know that, you know, I want to know how you think about that in your work. Like, what you know, what constitutes gentrification when advocating for new housing, and what does not?
1: Yeah. So you know, I th- like we typically focus on anti-displacement measures and renter protections rather than just, like, gentrification overall. Because, like, as you alluded to, what exactly is gentrification? Like, different people have, like, different ways of talking about it. You know, some of it really is, you know, vibes. Like, the community is, like, shifting in ways that, like, maybe I don't like. Is this really a matter of policy that, like, there aren't as many, you know, people who like going to your dive bar and then, like, indie shows afterwards? Uh, Like, you know, I don't know. But what you can guard against is, well, do... If folks want to build a building somewhere, do renters currently live there, right? So like the mm-hmm. kind of legislation that like we sponsor, we say, well, then that's an ineligible site. Like you can't kick people out, and we also say that if a renter had lived there in the past, for instance, like for like most of our bills, if a renter has been there for the past several years, you can't use that site because we don't want to incent, you know, landlords to kick out renters, hold the property vacant, and then redevelop it. So like we take. Right those displacement um, issues very, very seriously, and and everyone should. Um, what I would say, though, is there has been a ton of research recently on what are the impacts of building market-rate housing, even in low-income areas. And, you know, about, say, like 10, 15 years ago, we didn't have great answers. Now we had really good evidence at like the regional level and even like the city level for big enough cities that actually, yes, new market rate housing, even expensive housing reduces displacement, reduce, like in terms of like low income out migration, it reduces evictions and it reduces upward price pressure. That's like consensus position. and has been for years. What we didn't know is, okay, well, like what about it? Like the neighborhood level, like on my block, on the you know two blocks over, what happens when you build this new market rate housing? And in part because of new data sets that have recently become available, um, we now know that actually the same thing at the regional level happens. Uh, it's studies from all over this country have shown that new market rate housing is associated with, at the local neighborhood level, reduced eviction filings and lower, uh, reduced displacement and reduced upward price pressure on rents. And so, like, that's all. Like, like that. Like, that's that. Like, that's great. But again, it is important to make sure that you're not like kicking people out of their home as as you build new homes.
0: So the, you're literally saying, if a new home, like a home for purchase or new mm-hmm. apartments, are built in an area, all of the rental apartments next door, like the older stock housing, there's actually less pressure on those units because something new is that's built correct. next door. Is that that's wow. correct? It, it, I, 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 that does kind of make sense to me. I, I saw, this is very dumb, but I saw a TikTok <laughs> a couple of months okay. ago by a, by an urbanist and they were pointing out that, you know, they were making fun of someone else's TikTok, which pointed out there's a big <laughs> condo high rise in a downtown of some city in America, right? Yeah. A huge high rise, like 50 story tall. And the person had said, this is a gentrification building, right? And the person who made the stitch, right, who connected to the, to the previous TikTok yeah. said, actually... It's really good if you build a super tall luxury building for all the rich people to go live in because it means they're not going to go to the outlying areas, you know, the the low, you know, the working class neighborhoods and buy starter homes and fix them up because guess what? There's a nice like, you know, fucking luxury building with a doorman downtown that they can live in.
1: The, and, oh, they so, they're gentrification uh, containment uh, units. Yeah. That's <laughs> 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 I mean, like what
0: they are. <laughs> It's a good way to put it, and and that's not going to be the case for every single piece of housing ever built. But yeah. these things are uh, these things are complicated. Um, you have to look really closely at what you're building where. You can't just say, "Hey, anything new is gentrification. I don't like it." You have to say, "Well, what are you really trying to avoid? Displacement. And is this building going to cause displacement or not? Is that sound right?
1: I think that sounds right, but. You also remember, like, like where do you see the greatest displacement pressures, right? You see them. And again, we know this through looking at all these studies. They're in places that aren't building. There are places that are attractive to high-wage earners that are not building housing. And so, you know, like, to me, like, the, the archetypical image of, like, a gentrified neighborhood is not these, like, you know, new gleaming condos is these gorgeous old Victorians, right? I mean, like, right. the image of, like, the painted ladies in San Francisco or these, like, gorgeous, like, row homes in, and, and, like, Columbia Heights and, like, Washington, like, DC or something. Like, that's what gentrification looks like. Like, these, right. like, nice old historic homes that you know were all fixed up on the inside. Um, and, but, like, no more people get to live there than, than lived there before. In fact, typically you see fewer people live in those units because, like, upper income households generally don't have as many, you know, kids or, or like, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, grandparents like living with them, et cetera. Uh, and so you have fewer people now occupying significantly more expensive housing. Uh,
0: okay. Well, look, we've had some really big victories recently in this solving this problem. Um, at least in California, that maybe can be a model for the country. Uh, so we're going to talk about those and what you personally can do listener to fight back against the housing crisis. When we come back with more Brian Handley. Okay, we're back with Brian Hanlon. Um, So you were talking about, hey, these are the policies that you advocate for in order to fix the housing crisis. Um, We have actually had, surprise, surprise, some pretty big legislative movement here in California, the epicenter of the housing crisis, if I may be so bold, a place where you know, uh, wealthy homeowners have been able to stop development for decades, a place in which, you know, we have environmental protection laws that have been abused by people who want to stop development for decades. Um, it's really been, you know, intractable in this state. And yet we just saw some really big bills come out that are going to, I think could make a difference. Can you tell me about them?
1: Yeah. Um, no, the, 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 the past like five years, you, you've really seen a, a sea change in California policymaking around housing production. And in fact, uh, last year was the highest production housing year since the Great Recession uh, in California, uh, in part due to this state legislation that we're passing. Wow. So, like, just this year, some of the the biggest victories. I won't get into all of them because there's just been so much winning like happening recently. It would like take too long. Um, I would say. <laughs> That's what I like to hear. Yeah. So like two of the bills that I'm most excited about. Um, one bill, AB twenty eleven by Buffy Wicks. Um, sorry, I'm going to use like some like jargony numbers here. Um, uh, this is a bill that legalizes is um, 100% uh, affordable housing for low-income households in commercial districts and mixed income housing along commercial corridors, provided that you meet certain labor standards and, and have certain aff- 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 affordability requirements. This is a big bill. Um, estimates um, uh, suggest that this bill could create 1.6 to 2.4 million new homes, including wow. hundreds of thousands of deed restricted uh, 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 homes, affordable to, uh, to low income people. And that would not have happened without, I mean, both, uh, you know, humbly suggest like, you know, California YIMBY and like YIMBY allies, uh, I across the state, like working diligently, but really, especially the Carpenters Union, they really stepped up and organized the hell out of, you know, trying to get this bill passed. And so the sort of like, you know, uh, nascent uh, alliance between labor and YIMBYs is going to be really important going forward. And in fact, we actually had another bill, well, not as big an impact, um, SB886 with State Senator Scott Weiner. This is a bill that we partnered with the State Construction and Building Trades Council on uh, that streamlines dorm building on campuses for UC, for the University of California um, and and other uh, public education systems in, in California, uh, in part because like students are massively rent burdened there. They live in overcrowded housing uh, and many California students. To experience homelessness in a given year. It's, it's a real shame.
0: Yeah, I mean, there was recently. Was it? Was it UC Berkeley? Literally had to cut enrollment because they were prevented from building a dorm.
1: So um, yes, a judge. Uh, this this misanthropic judge, um, uh, you know, ruling on behalf of this guy. I think he's like a hedge fund guy who spends half of his time in like Bali or something. I don't even know. He's like like lives part time in, in in Berkeley. You know, sued uh, the the school for growing too much. Then the legislature, the state legislature, went into action, Um, uh, uh, State Senator uh, Nancy Skinner, who represents Berkeley uh, and is like the budget chair, negotiated a deal real quickly Passed what's called the emergency legislation and basically undid the judge's order. So UC Berkeley did not actually need to cut enrollment there, but that was a real threat. Um, uh, And and then I would also add uh, one other bill from this year, uh, this bill by uh, Senator Laura Freeman from the the Burbank uh, Glendale area in, in Los Angeles, it would end mandatory parking mandates for um, uh, homes and businesses that are near major transit stops for most projects, uh, and this is like a. Real, Why is that a big deal? Well, so f- uh, for, for for a few for a few reasons. One, uh, building like uh, parking spots and parking lodges is really expensive. Like you're talking anywhere between you know thirty and eighty thousand dollars per unit in cost, which significantly increases rent and the the price of t- to buy a home. Um, uh. Also. It makes building a lot of the smaller, think like all those more historic, like four plexes. You know, like he's like they basically come kind of with like big single-family homes. But they actually have four units. Like they never have parking because you can't really fit parking in that kind of built, what's called building envelope, like the actual the space of the building. And so this bill is going to make it possible to build much more naturally affordable homes that don't have all these expensive park requirements. And and I think like you as well. Like you and I are kind of weirdos. Like we don't we don't own cars. Um, yeah. and so like, I don't need a parking space. Like, why do I need to pay for a parking space? Um, it's like, th- like this is going to be like, uh, uh really helpful in accelerating more like climate friendly, uh, home building. And then in the past few years, I won't get into everything. I will say some of the biggest successes have been around accessory dwelling unit legalization bills. So an ADU think like a backyard cottage or like you're converting your garage to allow yeah. an in-law or someone to live in. Uh, You know, there was legislation on the books, uh, actually all the way since 1982, uh, way back when I was born. And just like, you know, me at that age, I was totally useless. And so was this law for decades. Um, then we started passing, you know, significant amendments the past few years, and ADUs have skyrocketed. They're now 50, 50, 15% of all homes built in California are now ADUs, 25% in Los Angeles are now ADUs, and that's because of the state legislation. And we've also passed a number of other bills that, as I mentioned, right, like the anti-renter bans and like and under HOAs, um, and, you know, significantly. Uh, curtailing the ability of local governments to deny zoning approval housing—that's been a real big one. Where oftentimes these, you know, especially like exclusionary cities, uh, use their power to deny housing that they say will, that they will allow underneath their rules. And and California YIMBY has sponsored some very significant bills uh, to, to to make that a lot harder and more expensive uh, for cities to engage in
0: yeah, there's all these cases where you've got these little cities that are like very wealthy and, you know, let's be honest, are have right wing governments, uh, Mm -hmm. that are made up of, you know, people who are, you know, wealthy, uh, affluent people who don't want any new housing built. And the state is saying you have to build housing and they do everything they can to get out of it. They, they like come up with these weird procedural rules. They say, Oh, we looked and we couldn't find anywhere. Uh, and then you got to take them to court. You got to do all this. Like it's, it's a battle. And, uh, it's, (laughs) it's, it's one that that maybe will be a little bit easier to fight. So so are these new bills, are these now passed? Have they been signed or are they? So, great closed?
1: question. So um the, the bills I mentioned for this year, they have all passed. Um so it's just actually been a really great year in the legislature. And now we gotta exert pressure on Governor Gavin Newsom to sign them all. Um and you know, based on our political intel, we think he's likely to sign them all, although the one that we are a bit more concerned about is the um parking bill. Um, uh, There's, of course, opposition, like people like free, cheap, abutted parking. um, And we we are are continuing to direct pressure to the governor to not veto it. But this makes, all this bill does is it makes it legal to build homes without
0: parking. You can still build the parking. (laughs) You could build the parking if you want, but it was previously required to build parking. Whereas now you could build a transit accessible home next to the subway, next to bus lines that doesn't have parking for folks who want a place that is $80,000 cheaper than a place with parking and, uh, you know, where they can park on the street or they can get a fucking Vespa or a bike or whatever. They don't need to pay for parking. They might not use. Um, Got it. Okay. Well, uh, perhaps these bills will be signed by the time this episode comes out. Perhaps they will not. But uh, I think these are some shocking wins that could really actually help
1: make the housing crisis better in California. Is that not true? Uh, that is definitely true. And and look, you know, I, I'm focused on California because like we focus on state legislation here. But I talk with my pro-housing allies in other parts of the country and, like, you're seeing a lot of winning throughout throughout the country. I mean, like, Gainesville, mm. Florida, right? I mean, like, like, all kinds of places that, like, you, like, wouldn't necessarily expect if you get all of your housing news, like, from Twitter or something. Um, like, you, you're really seeing, uh, like, EMB pro-housing organizations emerge all over the country working with their either local city council or their state government and passing ordinances and laws to accelerate home building and, you know, try to build more inclusive and, and affordable uh community. So you know, i like i'm I am very optimistic um about uh, where uh, where we're headed., uh, it is just a lot of work, yeah. Uh,
0: well, let's talk about what we as people can do to help, right? I mean, like housing is something that, we are really feel subject to as people, that uh, I don't get to control the housing prices in my area. You know, people tell you, ah, move somewhere cheaper. That's bullshit when people tell you to do that. You know, you shouldn't be forced to move in order to have someplace to live. Um, But, you know, it often feels like an ocean liner in terms of how difficult it is gonna be to turn. What are the things that, you know, we as people can do to actually you know, help turn the the ocean liner and help solve the housing
1: crisis. Yeah, so I mean, I think it depends like what your interests are. Like you were talking about uh, TikTok. I'm not personally on TikTok, but apparently lots of other people you are. You got to get on TikTok. So, it's really fun. You know, it's addictive and it's fun, <laughs> and they're
0: spying on me, and I and I can't get uh, get off of it. So I recommend it to everyone. Join me in my misery on TikTok.
1: <laughs> no, but like, okay, like you mentioned, like a TikTok urbanist videos. Like I get, you know, I, I get like texts from like my like you know like. You know, like like friends in like the food industry, and they're just like, hey, did, did you see this? Like, do you know this guy? Like, this stuff actually matters. It changes conversations. Like, pe- like uh, people talk about it. Uh, so, if you're great at making TikTok videos, like, get on it. Um, but I would say, like, a more like normy thing to do. Um, one, like, see, is there a local YIMBY group uh, where you are? If so, join it. Um, do you know who your city council member is? If not, find out and get to know them. Um, is there like, are you a homeowner? Is there a homeowner association? Are they advocating bad things? Like get on that, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, just, like, get more involved in civic life. Um, and, you know, if you want to, you know, engage in combat on Twitter or whatever, like, yeah, that's, like, kind of helpful. I think that should mostly be viewed as, like, entertainment and, like, blowing steam, et cetera. That's, like, not really how like, the, 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 the real work works. But, like, you know, there's there's power in organization. Um, as yeah. as an old, like, you know, like, you said, like, there's power in union. And, like, one of the things that, that I, like, you know, think about a lot, like, like why is this, you know, Movement emerging now. Now, while like if you actually like look at the membership of these groups and and like of of our group, right? Like the median activist with California YIMBY is a middle-aged woman that has adult children. Um, Yeah, uh, um, it's more like you like League of like women voters kind of like demographic. Um, But if you look at who like okay, who started these groups, who are the most like online activists, it's largely. Millennials um, who like have like middle class or like professional class jobs, and I think what really changed here is a lot of these these housing policies exclusionary housing policies, often cases that were put into place like you know fifty, eighty years ago in order to mandate racial and economic segregation, have in effect worked so well that like our like you know great grandparents' generation that that put these rules in place like they're now screwing us, and so what really happened, and I think like. If I can like read like one quote from like E.P. Thompson, the English socialist and a historian, when talking about the making of the uh, English like working class, is that class happens when some, and apologies for the general language, when some men, as a result of common experience, limited or shared, feel and articulate the identity of their interest as between themselves and as against other men whose interests are different from and usually opposed to theirs. And that's really what's happened here. You have a bunch of folks who realize that, you know what, we may have different class backgrounds from the context of like employment, but from the perspective of land ownership, this more almost like feudal sort of uh, position, we have a lot in common and we also have common enemies. And you've seen people come together and fight for their self-interest for a more affordable, you know, California, in my case, you know, Gainesville in the case of the recent victory, uh, or really anywhere in this country.
0: Yeah, I want to make clear when you say our, our grandparents, meaning like the grandparents of you and I as white people, yes. put in place yes. these exclusionary yes. yes. policies, they ended up hurting their white grandkids as well. They also ended up hurting all of the people oh, yeah. of color oh, yeah. who are, no, who are like, listening to this show and are affected by these policies as well.
1: One hundred percent. And I mean, like hell, like if you look, the 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 origin of detached single family uh, home only zoning is Berkeley, California, right? Like they were uh, Berkeley's was uh, pioneers in all sorts of things. And if you read the nineteen 19- 15 edition of the Berkeley Civic Bulletin where they're discussing this new thing called zoning and should Berkeley adopt it, etc. They were, they didn't use euphemisms in 1915. They were a very, very clear that their goal was to create professional class white neighborhoods, Elmwood was a specific neighborhood and it's still to this day a very, very wealthy neighborhood, and to, to, seg- and to keep out black and what they referred to then as Asiatics um, or the heathen mm. Chinese. Um, and You know, like these exclusionary um, uh, uh, impulses, like they worked, you know, like it's, you know, like it, 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 it worked. And like our job now is to undo them. And I think it's a really exciting thing that a lot of folks, you know, especially like a lot of like, you know, grassroots EMBs, like maybe they were, they also, I mean, hell, like I studied 20th century U.S. political history. So I was already like well-versed in this sort of like history of like segregation and racism, but a lot of folks weren't. And now they get to be to to fight in common cause and say it's like well this is impacting me but you know what it's actually impacting other folks even far worse um, and yeah. so like now this is an opportunity to work together again recognize our mutual class interest uh, and our like mutual uh, opponents here and build a much more you know affordable inclusive and sustainable world.
0: The word you're looking for here is solidarity. That's right. It's an opportunity to build solidarity, which is a connection with the labor movement, as you say. Um, It's a, uh, you know, solidarity is people from different backgrounds coming together to support each other's shared interests and and support the interests of people you might not share their interests, but you see their struggle and you connect it to yours and you have each other's backs. Um, I want to return to your point about organization and how important it is. Uh, homeowners associations, if folks aren't familiar, are can be these incredibly inimical groups of homeowners who get together. Uh, you know, start a structure that a. Controls what each other can do on their land. Oh, you can't allow someone to rent out your home. You can't. You have to. You know, you have to have a certain kind of bush in your front yard or whatever. That's bad enough. That you know, this is a way that people exert control over each other. What's worse, with the force of law, by the way. Um, but what's even worse is that sometimes these home- homeowners associations become very politically powerful, and so the head of the homeowners association reaches out to that city council person and says, mm, "They're ch- thinking about building a new apartment building. I don't like it, and you know how many votes I control." because I have a newsletter and you don't right and I can say say to everybody vote this person out of office and they end up like that 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 is the arch nimby, right that sort of yeah, person yeah no, like
1: the Sherman Oaks Homeowners Association is like the archetypical oh, yeah. example of this uh, this is a a, a well to do neighborhood in La, in Los Angeles and for decades they have just been you know running housing policy and like, like to this day you know, the votes in that part of Los Angeles are really, really hard for us to get, even if the individual representatives are not NIMBYs personally, even if, like, they completely agree with the racial, the economic, and the climate justice arguments. And they're like, yeah, but here's the thing, Brian, I'm going to get voter out if I vote for your bill. <laughs> like, um, and so, like, this is – yeah.
0: Well, oh, what I was going to say is uh, there have been so many stories coming out about people. I've read a couple of anecdotes like this of people being, re- realizing that they hate their homeowners association, that it's making their life worse and making their city worse, and then they take it over. They, yeah, org- right. they, or- they counter-organize, they start knocking on neighbors' doors being like, hey, do you like the fact that you're getting yelled at for not taking your trash cans out at the exact right minute of day and you can't control, you know, what you, you know, leaving, a, leaving your truck parked in your yard? Tell you what, vote for me for the next person to run the Homeowners' Association. And then once they get into power, they dismantle the Homeowners' Association, <laughs> they take it apart. Stuff like that, that can be really, really powerful. But a contrasting thing that I think is powerful is starting your own organization. Like if you're a renter, yes, starting a, a tenants' organization in your building that can, uh, you know, exert. Uh, its you know, if you've got a hundred tenants and you're emailing the city council person, you're saying, "Hey, we're having trouble with the landlord, and also we'd like more rental housing to be built." That can be super powerful as well, and you can have solidarity and support each other when the when the landlord says, "Hey, there's a three hundred percent rent increase." You can say, "Fuck you, I, me and a hundred other tenants are organized." Right? Stuff like that can one hundred percent, can't it? Yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, and like, this is the, the sort of thing where, you know, like, yeah, it's, it's like, you know, free to just like go on Twitter and like tweet and like maybe you can get some engagement and that's kind of fun, but the hard work of organization and it is hard, but it's also like the, you know, the the joy of solidarity is real, right? Like when you're actually oh, yeah. like, you know, working with your neighbors at this like common cause. Cause like, it's not, it's not all like, you know, boring, like you're going out and you're, you're drinking and you're otherwise like having fun. And hopefully you at least like, l- like a few of them. Um, and then like when you actually like taste victory and you're, you're like oh wait my <laughs> landlord all of a sudden like they're they're you know fixing our broken appliances fast now whereas like before like they were not um or they were threatening to you know evict one of my neighbors for like no good reason and now they've backed off that's a great feeling
0: Yeah oh my god it's incredible especially when cuz landlords fucking lie they lie to people they say, a friend of mine right now her elderly mother her husband died her, this this old woman is in this apartment. The landlord is terrifying her by saying she has to do literally like a, you know, like an extra six hundred dollars a month, saying she's evicted. And my friend is saying to her, mom, "No, this is illegal. What they're doing, yep. putting her in touch with the tenants' right organization, that kind of thing." It makes my blood boil thinking about you know this poor woman being treated this way in a place that she's lived for thirty years. But this is what landlords do and this is something that we can fight back against if we start some tenants rights organizations or find some and and you know band together and have solidarity with each other
1: yeah so like you know like uh two things to say one absolutely right um, and like landlords especially love to like prey upon people who don't know their rights who they think probably don't know their rights um uh obviously tenant rights vary tremendously based on what like local jurisdiction that you're in but typically if you have a tenant right organization they can help educate you to, to figure out like what your your uh, rights are but also this is also why it's important to just like build a ton more like rental housing. Like landlords wouldn't have the power to be like, I want to increase your rent by $300 a month. You'd say like, Oh, okay, uh, cool, man. I'm going to go get a better apartment for like less money. And they're like, wait, 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 no, no, no. One month free, you know, sorry. Like that's like, and look, look, like and some of us got to taste this like during COVID, I negotiated an 18% rent reduction <laughs> you wow. know, in the early days of COVID. Cause you know, I like living in downtown Oakland, you know, all of a sudden like the amenity value, of the neighborhood kind of drops to zero. Cause like, I'm not like, like all the offices are closed. The restaurants are closed, the bars are closed. I'm not taking the subway anywhere. Um, and yeah, I mean, I was able to 18% um, and I was talking to my neighbors. I told them what I did like, wait, really? I'm like, yeah when you come up for renewal, like, you know, send them an email with like a little analysis of other rents in the area and ask for a reduction. And I, and my neighbors also did it. Like, it was great. Yeah. Do you feel
0: that there is any kind of, you know, sea change happening in our you know national consciousness about this? Because, You know, we used to live in a world in which, uh, you know, Americans loved building new housing, loved building new things um, in which, uh, you know, housing was seen as something that was available to everyone. Uh, And, you know, now we live in this world where people are like, oh, they built something new over there. And, um, you know, we, we all feel oppressed by the price of housing. Uh, do you feel that we're starting to to see a change in this that that the the crisis is starting to cause a response yeah. in the minds of the American people?
1: I, so yes, um, I think we are, and you definitely see this in housing. You also see this. I mean, hell, look, the, the 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 Biden administration um, has said like a lot of great things about housing production. There, they're hell, there's, there's even a Yimby Act, like you know, before Congress right now. So like, like, you actually are like seeing some stuff. But beyond housing, though, I think you're speaking to a larger like vibe shift. Uh, that's like a good thing. Uh, where folks are like, you know what, we actually do need to build more good things. Um, uh, this is a country that like if you think like early 20th century, like you know, post-war era, you know, building bridges, building power plants, like building the highway system, which you know explains about, but like, you know, the government just building this massive infrastructure in order to support like broad-based like uh prosperity and economic growth and everything else. And now we, we sort of said that you know, since the seventies. Like many of us, especially those of us on the left, have been like, "Oh, wait a minute! There are all these, you know, problems with that—the highways, the the dams—they kill the fish, blah blah blah." And like that's like all, you know, true. But how do we actually build the future that we want? Like we we can't just like say no to things. And I, th- I think like Derek Thompson of the Atlantic has talked about this a lot, and like other like Jerusalem Demsas uh, has mentioned this. This more like abundance agenda. Like we need abundant housing. We also need, you know. Abundant clean energy production. Um, you yeah. know, AOC has talked about this too. It's like, well, like, well, like, is permitting reform, uh, you know, broadly good or bad? Well, like, I don't know. Like, we shouldn't make it easy to drill more oil wells, but we should make it easy to, you know, do like geothermal wells um, and like yeah. and you know, um, you know, wind farms and, and solar plants and, and like all the rest. Like this carbon free transition and you know, at large is going to require us to build a ton of stuff. And we can do so without making the same mistakes that folks made in the more like, you know, early mid uh, 20th century period.
0: Yeah, and if we're talking about environmentalism, which I I'm, I'm a I'm an incredible I'm inc- I, not, I'm an incredibly huge environmentalist. I don't know how effective I am, but
1: uh, and I, I, I eat I work- granola every morning. Like I am, like <laughs> I used to work for the EPA and the Forest Service. I'm like yeah. a cartoon joke environmentalist with like bikes everywhere. Okay. Yeah, I mean, so
0: we both give a shit. Yeah. I think we would both agree though that, you know, if we if if we care about the natural world, we're not going to preserve it if the only place to build new housing is a a bunch of tract homes out in the desert that, you know, three hours from the city center, you can, where nobody gives a shit, that's where you build all the new housing. No, we need to build, Taller in our city centers so that we can preserve all that land out there because we have a growing population until we stop fucking We're not gonna stop having a growing population and I don't think we're gonna stop fucking anytime soon I certainly don't want to ask people to stop so we need a place for the people to live and We should we got to knock down some old buildings and build some really tall new ones Otherwise, we're gonna be like, you know eating up more of the natural world and you can go to countries that have huge populations and also are full of, you know, the natural inv- go to Japan, right? Japan yeah. has some in- in, in, in an enormous population, enormously dense population, and also enormous parts of that country are gorgeous and natural because they have built, I don't want to speak to Japanese housing policy but that was my experience of being there for a week and It's so much like, more
1: affordable too, right? Like, yeah. like Tokyo makes Sacramento California look outrageously expensive um, Like, it's, it's amazing what you can do when you actually just build a lot of dense infill housing. <laughs> and it sounds like we are doing it, and uh, you've given us a wonderful
0: list of ways that people listening can be a part of that. So I, I really thank you for being for being here, Brian. Uh, where can people find out more about California YIMBY, or more importantly, where can people find a YIMBY organization in their neighborhood?
1: Yeah, so I would say if you're in California, C A YIMBY, yes my backyard, um, You can uh, uh, sign up to like our rapid response team, start calling into uh, uh, legislative uh, committee hearings. Uh, uh, and, and make your voice felt as well as get connected to your local group. If you're like outside of California, uh, Welcoming uh, Neighbors Network is doing a ton of good work organizing folks all over the country. That's welcomingneighbors.us. welcomingneighbors.us. I love that name.
0: Welcom- welcoming neighbors. That's what we all want to be doing, and that's what we need to do in order to solve the housing crisis. That's right, is welcome neighbors into our communities. Who doesn't want to do that? Assholes. <laughs> Well, we're not assholes, and no one listening is an asshole, and neither are you. Uh, Brian, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been a delight and a pleasure. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. Well, thank you once again to Brian Hanlon for coming on the show. I hope you loved that conversation as much as I did. By the way, if you live in Portland, come see me live. I'm going to be at the Helium in two weeks. I hope to see you there. And I want to thank everybody who supported this show at the $15 a month level. That's Whiskey Nerd 88 Susan E. Fisher, Spencer Campbell, Sam Ogden, Samantha Schultz, Ryan Shelby, Robin Madison, Richard Watkins, Rachel Nieto, Paul Schmidt, Paul Malk, Nuyigik Ippalook, Nikki Batelli, Nicholas Morris, Mrs. K- King Coke, Mom Named Gwen, Miles Gillingsrud, Mark Long, Lisa Matulis, Lacey Tiganoff, Kelly Lucas, Kelly Casey, Julia Russell, Jim Shelton, Hillary Wolken, Ethan Jennings, Eben Lowe, Dude with Games, Drill Bill, David Conover, David Condry, Courtney Henderson, Chris Staley, Chase Thompson Bo Charles Anderson, Camus and Lego, Beth Brevik, Aurelio Jimenez, Antonio LB, Ann Slagle, Alan Liska, Allison Liparado Alexi Batilov, and Adrian. If you want to join them, head to patreoncom Adam Conover. That's patreon.com. Adam Conover. Of course, I want to thank our producer Sam Rodman, our engineer Kyle McGraw, Andrew WK for our theme song, the fine folks at Falcon Northwest for building me the incredible custom gaming PC that I'm recording this very episode for you on. You can find me online at Adam Conover, wherever you get your social media, or adamconover.net. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next time on Factually.
1: A podcast network.